All right. There. Get the pop-up out of the way. <laughs> All right. So ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, sweet. Oh, okay, just jump into this. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Zenfluence Podcast. Today I'm here with a very unique and special guest, Joshua Jordan, who is not only a US Army veteran, but also a meditation coach. And you know, I connected with Joshua on LinkedIn and I was just very fascinated by his brand, what he's doing in terms of the meditation coaching he's doing. And when I saw that he was a US veteran, it just seemed like a very unique type of person in this space. So I wanted to jump on here with Joshua and do a podcast with him, kind of pick his mind on his life story, how he got into meditation, where he sees uh, the benefits are, and also just uh, certain like life philosophies, where we'll go. There's maybe little things we disagree on, but I think it'll open up a great conversation. So with that, Joshua, I guess I'll just hand over the mic to you. And how would you explain who you are? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's odd because I actually heard somebody who was studying Nargajuna and understood Nargajuna, and he referred to himself as a collection of temporal causal states. And I guess that would probably be the most honest answer of who and what I am. I mean, it's like, it's a very profound question, actually. Um, you know, it really depends. You have an idea of who I am in your head. Everybody has an idea of who I am in their head, and that's different from who I really am. So it's 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 actually a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> yeah, well, well, so like, how did you, let's say, if we go back to even before you got into the Army, um, let's say just growing up in, in the U S like where, where, where were you born? You know, where, where did you come from? What was your origin story? I was born in a small town in New England. I was born in a city in New England and I grew up in a small town uh, with a very, uh, you know, small public school, class C school, no football team, mm -hmm. but uh, a very good library and very good local libraries and some commerce in the town. And I spent a lot of time in the forest uh, I spent a lot of time by myself in the forest, just kind of climbing trees and, you know, going through swamps and whatnot. And <clears throat> so they, um, they used to have like at the river, for example, they had a cable that went over the river and there was an apparatus that they used to take into the middle of the cable and they take this disc to check the turbidity of the water. Mm -hmm. So we used to, I used to go on places like that and, um, you know, probably not supposed to be on the apparatus, um, probably trespassing but you know i would take it out on the river and do my things and i did other you know things like that playing in the forest and yeah um i spent a lot of time doing that and then i um segued into the military through rotc that's how i got to be a veteran but while i was in school I, uh, I used to sit in lotus position when I was in fourth grade. This kid in my class taught me how to do it. And our oh, teacher used to tell us, yeah. he just said, take your legs like this and see if you can do this. Because, you know, kids will wiggle their ears and do stuff that other kids can't do. Well, this was something the other kids couldn't do. He wanted to see if I could do it, and I could. And the teacher says, you know, oh, your kneecaps are going to roll off. Well, we used to walk around on our hands and bump each other, you know, like bumper cars. Mm -hmm. And so I had that from from him from jeremy and i just 
started piecing together other things and I started trying to meditate and, uh, you know, what I thought was meditation. And then in high school, um, I also took a Tai Chi course and that's when my Sifu taught me some formal meditation techniques. And, um, that helped in the army, actually, a lot of stillness, you know, standing at attention and so on. And when I was in the army, I, I started at a more yogic program, a very harsh program, very difficult program with very little instruction, very little support. And that was when I considered myself a competent meditator because I could sit for more than 30 minutes at a time in absolute mm-hmm. stillness, focusing on my breathing. And I was so zealous about it that, you know how when you lay down to go to sleep, your your arm twitches? See, I didn't know that that's an instinct uh, for your brain to check to see if you're still asleep. So I thought that I was involved in some kind of weird battle with myself, like I didn't want myself to be able to meditate. And so I was involved in a weird battle with myself for a long time until I figured that out. So I did a lot of things without much support and without much coaching. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, I started helping people with the things that I was doing in the army because it was very basic. It was very simple. And it was quite frankly, a great way to sort of get rid of people because no, they would, they would ask me, well, I want to be able to do this. Okay. Well sit still for five minutes. And when you reach 15, call me. And I hardly ever heard from anybody again, you know? So when I coach people now, the system is pretty much the same, but there's a lot more support, encouragement, handouts, contact, I ask for journals and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did this very harsh method that was done with me for a while. And um, and then eventually turned it into a business. But that's basically in a nutshell. I guess you could say I started kind of intuitively, but I didn't consider myself a competent meditator. I may have been in Tai Chi. I definitely was when I was in the Army. Yeah, well, well so number one, I just think that's so fascinating, Joshua, because you don't necessarily see a lot of, um, I guess, like U.S. veterans who also have this meditation background, right? And I think that, uh, see, like for me, like I'm not too familiar with meditation, but like someone I really look, like reading a lot about was Ralph Waldo Emerson and and those guys, like the American uh, transcendentalists, I guess. And, you know, there's always these ideas that they would go into the forest and you know, be at entering peace. the forest, he doesn't disturb a blade of grass. Entering the water, he does not cause a ripple. That was Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? Mm, uh, I, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's it sounds like it. Like like a big one for me was self reliance because uh, really that book was about just learning to trust yourself and just really being like getting to know yourself and supporting yourself. And I think that's something like specifically when I look at the United States. Like, I think that's like a core value of like an American is like, yeah, you have something to offer, whether you're in, you know, Canada or the US, you have something to offer. And by you like tapping into your intuition, you know, that's what uh, the American founding fathers did. And I think that's what we each have, like, other than just, yeah, that's, that's what we each have an obligation to do. Right. And I think you obviously have done it in the sense where it's almost like I see a guy who has followed his intuition and you have like this unique business um, of like meditation coaching. So I I just find it very fascinating, uh, like your whole story. But here's a question I have for you. And it's why at a young age, so you said when you were in grade four, you started meditating. Um, See, for me personally, like I I went to a Christian school and I I would consider myself a Christian, but um, 
you know, what gravitated you towards meditation at I such a punished. age? I think that's very unique. I got punished as a child and I'd stare at walls while I was being punished. Like if I had to sit at the kitchen table or if I was uh, being made to stay in a recess or something like that. I mean, you can keep looking around the room at all the random boring things, or you can just stare at the wall and wait and see what happens. And so I'd, I, there were other kids that would stare at walls and I would talk with them and it was, it was almost, you know, I've never really talked about this publicly. And uh, it's it's odd because there's part of me that doesn't know that it, know that if I should, because it was it, there were there were private groups of kids and we we talked about a lot of these sorts of things and I just sort of mixed these. I know I I would describe this now as experiments with altered states of consciousness. I did not have that vocabulary at the time. I stared at walls, but what I was doing was I was experimenting with altered states of consciousness, and these experiments oh, in altered states of consciousness, and my experiments in, at nighttime when I went to sleep in hypnagogic induction. I couldn't have told you that that's what I was doing at the time either, but I was doing hypnagogic induction, and I was also doing hypnopompic. Um, I was also enjoying hypnopompic uh, sensations uh, when you wake up, and um, so, yeah, so I so just what are these things? Like I'm very like I'm, I'm okay. So hypnagogic induction, basically, you want to pay attention when you're going to sleep. I developed some exercises when I was a kid. You know, people tell you to count sheep or whatever. That could be a hypnagogic induction exercise if you can remain conscious while you're doing it, though most people are doing it to go to sleep. The idea is to maintain consciousness while your body goes to sleep and watch what happens. It's a very interesting thing. I wanted to see what would happen. And when you wake up, too, you know when you wake up, sometimes you see things and hear things, and some, right? You're in that kind of... That's mm-hmm. hypno, those are hypnopompic hypnopompic And so my experiments in the liminal states of consciousness basically brought me into well, I mean, it's correspondence. It's like the it's like the secret, the law of attraction. You're doing something, you see this other guy, he's doing this thing, it looks kind of like what you're doing, and you I don't know, you come into orbit. And then over time, it's um things just sort of solidified. I guess, but it started just because I was, well, I was punished and that was, that was my way of dealing with it, my way of dealing with the punishments. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so were you punished at school or was it just like from family or, uh, for, I was, I was, uh, I was a bit of a hellion as a kid. Um, so yeah, I, I got punished pretty much everywhere. Yeah, well, uh, maybe we can cut that far. Well, I think I think that's unique in the sense that, uh, like, you're able to, you know, take something that's like a negative situation, like getting punished, and uh, in a sense, like years later, you know, you kind of like learned meditation through that, and I think that's very very fascinating um, because I think there's a lot of kids, like, whether you're young and you get in trouble or you get punished, who they wouldn't necessarily make it a, a practice to meditate and, and be calm with themselves. And But but a lot of them do. It's just that they don't have conscious awareness and control over the altered states that they find themselves in. Meditation can cause a dissociative experience. Now, if this is a sought-after experience that you can control, that's fine. But if you have dissociation, that's why, I, that's why I screen people for medical and mental health, because I would not want to work with someone who has a dissociative disorder because I could trigger a psychotic breakdown. So mm. unfortunately, I think a lot of these people are discovering these things, but they don't have a framework 
discipline, support, encouragement, or the the intelligence, wisdom, or resources. In some cases, I'm not saying all, but I'm sure there are at least a few mm-hmm. where people, if they had the intelligence, the wisdom, the resources, and the support, that they might not be in the same situation that they are with their mental health. I a lot of people think that the Buddha, for example, was the first psychologist, and he kind of you know unscrewed himself up in a lot of ways. And you know Nietzsche once commented that Western man became sick when Socrates started asking questions, which is an interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, um, you know, somehow it'd be good to find a way to get into the schools to make this available to the kids so that they might be able to have a way out of it. I just don't know how to do that. And there's a lot of, bad things in the schools now that are trying to do the exact opposite of that actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I guess you could make that statement to anybody on either side of the political divide right now. I mean, I'm, um, because I guess both sides see demons in the other side now, since the religious has collapsed into the political for most people, although not for you, mm-hmm. because you have a separation of the two, I suspect. Um, no, let's not get on that dark stuff right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think, yeah, the U.S. is just a very fascinating place. And, and I definitely agree with you. I think um, I think there's value in like either prayer or meditation or some practice, even if it's exercise to, you know, just like deal with like stress, deal with um, the troubles of life. And especially at a younger age, I think that is going to benefit you early on and see like what I'm all about is like intuition. I think intuition is a very unique thing. And uh, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs because uh, he talked a lot about intuition. And I guess a question I have for you, uh, Joshua is like, what, how would you describe intuition and how can someone build uh, that intuitive sense? Because I, I got this idea from you that you've kind of lived your life. And I know we'll dive later into this because I'm very fascinated by when you're, I think in high school, you mentioned you, you studied Tai Chi. Uh, I don't even, I don't know anything about Tai Chi, but I want to learn about that too. So um, I guess like the first part of this question is how can someone develop intuition? We all have it to a fair degree. So are you familiar with epistemology? Uh, not necessarily. Is that how the knowledge is connected? Yes, it's the branch of philosophy that's concerned with how we get our knowledge. So I view intuition as an epistemic tendency or an epistemic branch. It's basically like a school or a flavor. So you have things like authority, faith, um, science, which is which is really a fusion of rationalism and empiricism, and you have intuition and so on. So intuition would be one of the branches or tendencies of, of epistemology. So it's a valid form of knowledge. But it does have limitations, like all epistemic tendencies do, including science, because the two constituents of science have flaws. And putting two flawed constituents together does not make a perfect epistemic tendency. And there are certain questions that science doesn't even concern itself with, for example. Therefore, it cannot possibly be all knowledge, because there is certain knowledge that it doesn't deal with at all, because it doesn't deal with non-falsifiable hypotheses, for example. So intuition is a way that we get our knowledge basically through an interpretation, conscious or subconscious, of patterns that we see 
around us. We don't know how we know, but we know. In the same way that a parent knows that its kid took the cookie from the cookie jar. In the same way that you know something isn't quite right with your girlfriend. In the same way you know when you turn around the corner what you're going to find. We mm-hmm. don't know how we know, but we know. And developing that requires a few things. You have to have courage to accept whatever you find. A lot of people don't have the courage to do that. It's like the never-ending story, the second test. You know, the second test is worse than the first. Confronted with their true selves, most men run away screaming. And there's an element of that. And that's why a lot of people don't have intuition. They don't have courage. And they're not honest with themselves. And they don't trust themselves and they don't really trust their own life. And if you can break past those things, then I think it requires a certain sensitivity, a certain permeability, a certain awareness. And I'm not the person to say this because I'm still working on it, but a certain lightness of touch. And I have a long way to go with that. But mm-hmm. that's that's another thing. Because once you start to connect with things, well, I've realized how clumsy I am. And it can be a shameful feeling. And shame is when you know you can do better. And so it really comes down to following your heart and trusting yourself. It's the best way that I can put it. If, if none of the other things that I said make any sense at all, trust yourself, follow your heart, have courage, because you're going to find scary things in yourself and in others. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I just want to say that like, that's exactly what Steve Jobs said. Like Steve Jobs, I remember uh, it was like in, in his famous Stanford speech, he said, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition because they already truly know what you want to become. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah, that is very, very fascinating. So here's another question for you. Um, why, why is it difficult? And I'm sure you must see this with, uh, let, let's say, if different students come to you for coaching or whether it's meditation or certain um, issues that they're having in their life. Um, but why is it why is it scary or difficult for people to follow their their heart, let's say, or their intuition? There are a lot of answers to that. We can look at something as pervasive and obvious as propaganda and advertising, and we can see the effects that those things have on people. And then we can just look around at how people behave, and we can infer the rest. We can see that where people get their talking points from. We can see whether they think independently or not. We can see whether they're thinking critically or not. And the advertisers in the media aren't the only people that influence people. There are influencers and micro-influencers all over the place. You have collections of relationships and agendas. And you have the inherent suffering of life. And you have the the politics of life. I mean, if we can get religious for a moment, most religions are, are, are really about a political disagreement. 
in the, in the case of Christianity, the political disagreement between God and Satan, which I don't really see as a political disagreement through Isaiah 45, 7. I have a completely different view of the Satan than most people do. And um, I think that people are asked to choose sides in politics that they don't understand, whether it's in religion or whether it's in vote yes or no on this or that, whether it's Coke or Pepsi. People are constantly, it's almost as if, spiritually speaking, humans are in some kind of a circle and they're pushing combatants back into the circle to fight to the death. And at any moment, you could be the one that's thrown into the circle. There's a sense of that. And in some ways, that's what it's supposed to be with ideas. Ideas are supposed to be thrashed around in the arena of intellectual combat so that we can destroy the bad ones and raise up the good ones. But instead of attacking abstractions and conceptualizations, people are attacking the physical forms of other people. It's like in academia where you do an argumentum ad hominem and you argue toward the man. People are attacking the man rather than attacking the man's idea and the man's concept or the woman's idea and the woman's concept. And rather than working on the conditions around people and trying to convince or persuade them, they're imposing upon the free will of others. And anytime somebody picks up the cudgel and tries to beat somebody into submission, there's going to be trouble. Xi Jinping has accreted more power to himself than any man in modern history, even more than Mao Zedong. And he's presiding, arguably presiding over a genocide. And the guy that he took over from, the guy who was really ruling China before him, Jiang Zinmin, was presiding over a genocide of a different group of people. And here we are. How many people do you know that do business with the army that, 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 that protects this? How many people do you know that are doing business with, with, with the PLA through Apple or whatever? I'm not trying to be political, but I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. There's a genocide happening, for Christ's sake. If it was Hitler and the Jews, everybody would be flipping out about it. But because it's not, oh, it's okay. Oh, Stalin killed more people than Hitler, but he's okay. Not really. But why do we work with him? Well, because we could have a geopolitical conversation with him and we couldn't with Hitler. Very, very complicated, very messy situations that we're in that were happening before we were born. We're all very confused and we don't know what to do about it. And as a species, there was a film that I watched where this guy said, we're barbarians stumbling around in the dark trying not to kill one another. And unfortunately, I think that that is um, a good operational description of much of the human condition right now. And I think that that's why. Yeah, well, look, I, I, that, number one, that was just extremely um, fascinating. And I think I, I definitely have to agree with you. I think that... Uh, like as I've gotten older, I've just realized like the world is very complex in terms of like not only politics, religion, uh, but just life in general, just like understanding yourself, understanding, you know, your place in the world and how people operate. And um, I think for me too, like I'm going to fall back on like in terms of like Christianity, the thing that's always fascinated me about Christianity is this idea that I'll just, I'll spit it out there and see mm -hmm. what you think. But um mm -hmm. So you see like a lot of the early disciples were, were fishermen, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I heard this thing that like in the first book of the Bible, like the fish of the sea represents like humans in their lowest nature, right? So um, Jesus Christ, let's say, is someone who can, you know, 
take fishermen from like the lowest nature to the highest nature. And I think that represents like human tendency um, to just want to be like primal and, and just like fight wars and, and just like dominate and win. And like, that's, that's good in a sense if you can control it like rationally. But I think if you don't have that higher level thinking of like, why are we doing this? Uh, then it ends badly. Right. And I think, um, I guess I want to maybe jump into a different topic here, but like, could you bring it back to Tai Chi and like this, what, what is Tai Chi and does this relate to developing, um, like this awareness or like, how would you explain Tai Chi? Tai Chi, um, well, it started off for me, there were, there were some exercises that we did. We didn't, there, there's a, there was a form that you do. It's like a Yang style form that you, that you do. And there's some movements that go along with it. But before we got into all that, we started doing exercises. So we had to, there's a lot of things, it's called like energy work called Qigong. Uh, mm-hmm. So Qi is, is basically an energy that, that, that exists, you know, in this system and you can believe in it or not. Um, you can think of it like consciousness. So you want to look outside and you look at a mountain against what background do you see the mountain uh i'd say a blue background mm-hmm. the sky and against yeah. what background do you see the sky oh that is a good question um is it still blue the background of consciousness the background oh, okay. of your consciousness is the background against which you see the sky so chi would be considered kind of like that for the energies because the nearest that I can tell, I mean, I, this is, this is my own, this is my own way of looking at it. I mean, I'm not sure what my Sifu would have said, but the nearest I can tell is that this is all space time and that we're space time and that we're concrescences of space time. And so the Chi is a sort of primal energy. And the, one of the first exercises we did was to put our hands together and so, yeah, of course, you're feeling heat and so on, but there's other things that are happening. Your muscles start to relax and your hands start to tingle because your body and your existence, you're really like a stream of gas if you think about it. You eat the universe around you and you turn the universe. Well, you are the universe. You came out of it. You're not separate from it. You mm-hmm. you, you, you manifested f- and you're eating it and you're turning it into you and you're crapping parts of it out. You are it you're eating yourself and this um so this energy just forms the basis of all of these things this flow this interpenetrability and once you feel this thing okay if you think it's body heat or something like that and so then after that we did this thing where we would root ourselves so we'd we'd stand and bend our knees a little bit and we'd stand on what we call the bubbling springs the balls of our feet and we visualize growing roots like a tree into the floor the odd thing is, is that when people come and push you with the same pressure, you're harder to move. Now, that can be explained by balancing and whatever. But the point is, is that doing these exercises does cause you to align your body in a different way. Mm-hmm. And doing this work does cause myself and others to have certain sensations in the same way that I have intuitive experiences that allow me to flow through my life a little easier. And so... I, I'm a little out of practice these days, but when I was more in practice with my second Sifu, he's moved to Arizona since, um, 
I, when I would move in the shower, when I would go to get things, I move in the Tai Chi style. Now where I'm getting deeper into my yoga, I'm using more, you know, my spinal column and I'm using, you know, less muscle uh, structure than I used to. But Tai Chi is about energy. It's about mobility. It's about alignment, relaxation, grace, precision, the flow of energy. Um, one of the first things my that's over there, my Sifu taught me in Tai Chi was how to use the yin yang. You know, you go around it. Let me just get it real quick. Oh, my leg is dead. This is not going to be good. <clears throat> uh, you're sorry. You're going to have to visualize it. I got a dead leg. It's going to take. Right, I'm going to trip across the room. It's going to be terrible. Um, <clears throat> so you have the S here. You're going around the yin yang. And then you cut across the interface and you start going in the opposite direction. So then how do you flip it back the other way? So my Sifu had this thing that he did that was cheating, but I figured out that if you looked at the yin-yang as a four-dimensional object, that it created another polarity and that you could go through the other dimension and swing it back around. And I've got a whole bunch of uh, things over there. So yeah, it's, Tai Chi is about the flow of energy. It's about alignment with oneself, alignment with reality. There's a lot of energy work that goes into it. There's a flow of energy within the body. It's an entire system. You can get it, it can it can interface with things like Chinese medicine. It can interface with the I Ching. It can interface with Taoist books like the Tao Te Ching. It really depends on your particular practice. So I'm familiar with the Yang style. Both of my Sifu did did the Yang style of uh, of Tai Chi. There are other forms out there. I guess that's one of the more popular ones. Mm -hmm. And it basically involves going in, doing a series of exercises, like I mentioned. Um, there's a there's like pendulum exercises where you can check for imbalances in your body, and there's you know other ones to raise energy, and then you do your forms, and it all takes about an hour, and. The sensation after a Tai Chi class isn't as strong as yoga, but it's there. The activation of the parasympathetic nervous system is there. The calmness is there. And the vibration is there. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's a pleasing art. It's a very subtle art. And some say that it's the basis of all martial arts. Um, and yeah, you could see it that way. So do you have any, uh, did, I, did I answer your question? Oh, uh, I think so. That was very fascinating. So I guess then I, I like, yeah, you definitely answered my question there, but I have a follow-up question on this is how does Tai Chi, you know, how does that separate from, let's say the practices from India in terms of yoga, like in, in your opinion? So Yoga also has a particular energy that, that that's there as you can do approximates chi. There are channels and meridians, just like in Chinese medicine. So there's just a lot of approximation there. Most of these systems actually originally came from India, went through a through parts of Asia. And uh, a lot of this, uh, the, the proto-Indo-European invasions get get mixed up in this, like the sun Buddha in Kyoto looks a lot like a Hura Mazda from Iran. There's a lot of weird Mm -hmm. things that go on so as near as i can tell this stuff originated in india among a bunch of wandering people and they wandered up into tibet and china and 
from what I can see, some changes were made to some of these systems. So, for example, in India, in some of the Hindu systems, um, you know, you wouldn't take a wife, for example. Well, a lot of Chinese Taoists thought this was crazy. Family was very important to them, so they weren't going to take, you know, celibacy. My Sifu once commented that a main difference between Tai Chi and yoga is that yoga is more hormonal. It works on the hormones. It's much more subtle um, in that way, where Tai Chi doesn't focus on those things. It focuses more on alignment and movement. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, that's not really an answer to your question because I don't really have more than that. I don't, there's, there's, there are a lot of similarities and it's almost like, it's not quite apples and oranges. In some ways it isn't, in some ways it isn't. They're different disciplines. They do different things. It's, um, they're different tools. They can go together and they go together for me. They, they don't go together for everyone. Mm -hmm. so, so then here's another question for you, Joshua, but like, this is something I've like always, always been very uh, fascinated by, but there's the Eastern traditions and then there's the Western traditions, right? Like when you look at, um, let's say Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and then there's the, uh, you know, the Eastern tradition. So I guess in, in your mind today, like specifically in America, United States, what, what do you think are the pros and the cons of both sides? Like why is, mm -hmm. why would it be beneficial in like in your mind for um, let's say like a, a U.S. army um, veteran to have a meditation practice that's like an Eastern tradition and, but what about like the Western traditions in your mind? Like what place does that hold? So, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think there are a lot of Eastern traditions that are important. I don't think that the Western uh, way of life will really be able to continue if Westerners don't adopt some Eastern traditions because uh, it just doesn't seem like they're going to be able to take the pressure. Um, the West has been able to develop analysis to such a degree that they could split the atom. And we've been able to develop a lot of technology, and that's sort of been the excuse for a lot of our less graceful decisions, that all the wonderful toys that this provides. But that's going away because... The world's in demographic collapse, and this country's going to have a labor shortage for 60 years. And there are no kids anymore. Every generation after the millennials gets smaller and smaller, and you're not going to be able to support socialism, capitalism, or any of these isms on these demographic structures. So the party's over. And that's I think that'll start ringing true for a lot of people toward the end of the year. I think that... Um, The West has a lot going for it. Its main flaw is that it views the world as a construct. That goes back to the primordial clay and the breath of life. And they view everything as a construct. They view the universe basically as dull and stupid. and It needs to be pushed around and told what to do. And this isn't working. And... The Westerner views himself or herself basically as a victim. So, so then they, 
they see the suffering of life through their fellow human and they take the suffering of life that is inherent in all life and they turn their fellow man into an oppressor and it's not that difficult to do because we're all part of the universe and we're all connected and so these delusions are easy to spin and until we stop thinking of ourselves as victims and we confront the suffering of life and we have the tools to do this we have the greek myths we have christianity i mean for christ's sake pardon my french the whole the whole point of, of, of the christ's life was to show people that they didn't have to live this way you know the, he he did not live uh, a life of, of warfare in fact he told peter if he lived by the sword he'd die by the sword and when the Jews picked up stones to stone him in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 10, verse 30, he tried to communicate with them and quoted the 82nd Psalm. And there are a lot of good examples out there of how we can live differently, but we really like to crucify those people, don't we? And not only do we like to crucify them, but we like to say, let that this far and no farther. Let there be him and no more. We change it from a son of God in the Greek to the son of God in Latin. And we so we kick the Christ upstairs and we make his teachings completely ineffective. And that's another flaw that we have. Um, we need to overcome those things because there's a lot that we can do with what we have and we're misusing it. We have a misdealing with our existences. And it's possible through these Eastern systems for us to individually deal with our existences in a better way and then come back to our culture and to our way of doing things in another way and maybe in a better way. But we won't know until we try it. I'm not saying that I have the solutions or that all the problems are going to be fixed. I don't know. As I look back at the history of the planet, I look at what the Phoenician Canaanites tried to do. You would have thought that commerce and religious tolerance would have saved the damn planet but i think that's why we had the civilizational collapse that preceded buddhism and all these other things in the first place so maybe my ideas of commerce and religious tolerance aren't going to save the world and that's a shocking and horrible possibility but it's one that we have to live with that i could be wrong and in fact it's it's possible that we might never be able to get it right but that doesn't mean that we don't try and that doesn't mean that we keep doing things that that we know are wrong and that are severely impacting us and, and we can stop doing them so i think that um we can learn a lot if you go over to asia you'll see that a lot of people over there wear clothes like we wear and their buildings look a lot like our buildings look like and i think that in a spiritual sense in the west we could be doing something similar making our spiritual clothes and our spiritual buildings look a little bit more like what's going on over there Maybe things like valuing the family a little bit more than we do here. You know, maybe not to some of the extreme examples that I've seen over there where it becomes a collectivist and, and sometimes very abusive situation. But social atomization, a state of affairs where people have difficulty forming and maintaining relationships with one another. That's not going to tend to survivability. I mean, it might work now in our little virtual reality, but as soon as the power goes out or 
a, pan, a, a pandemic that that actually you know really starts you know we start seeing bodies in the streets like black death level kind of stuff once a real crisis starts these people ain't gonna make it yeah well, that's, yeah well uh, yeah yeah like I, I i definitely see your point there but i think just to just just to challenge that a bit i think um see like when i look at north america specifically um like i personally see people who are tremendously capable like when you just literally look at like everything that people are able to build and uh yeah i guess like i definitely agree with you in the sense that i think north americans have this inner spiritual nature that maybe we're not necessarily aware of maybe a lot of it could be like judo-christian values but i think even like when i study like the founding fathers of the u.s like benjamin franklin for example you know he he talks about being like deeply internally free and, and spiritual and that's that's kind of why he in like the external world he was like very experimental like he uh, experimented with electricity experimented in different arts and you know gave himself a gentleman scholar and uh i think a lot of the founding fathers of the u.s had this like thomas jefferson too all these guys even george washington right george washington was like a physically built you know leader but he also was deeply like internally um spiritual in a sense uh almost or you could say religious as well but but yeah i feel like maybe we're losing that i and, agree yeah. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are not George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, not even close. Mm -hmm. So so like why why <laughs> is it like why are we losing that? Like why like for example, like why is it that you mentioned like a founding father and um even like someone like President Lincoln and people just don't want it, don't want to hear it. Like they don't, it's almost like they look down on the founding fathers of the u.s that literally fought like the strongest empire in the world and defeated them and created like this new nation based on a single idea and like me being from canada like i've always resonated with um with that idea of like the american spirit the, that value mm -hmm. and uh see like to me that that seems spiritual in its sense i agree i agree i um I think American people at their heart are very pious people. That's why you see Christianity without Christ and religion without God. You see manifestation because we don't pray, we manifest. You know, it's prayer without any responsibility. What are some other ones that they, they oh, um, depending on which cult you're in, there's, there's a doctrine of original sin. Um, you can see this in um, this sort of Maoist, racist, anti-racist, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you can actually see a lot of Maoism, people looking down on the Founding Fathers. It's very, very similar to a Maoist revolution, isn't it? Where you have the four olds and the struggle sessions and all that, making people delete their tweets when you could easily do it for them. Yeah, it's all very reminiscent of Maoism. And um, I mean... again we look at we we look at who is disseminating what information we look at what they're saying who's saying it what the messaging is and when they pivot who pivots together who's on message how quickly are they on message who turns first who turns together did you notice how everybody turned on a dime on Elon Musk how everything it was like the ocean shifted 
okay? He's got the eye of Sauron on him. And whenever you see something like that, all the pieces get moved around. And you can start to see the patterns of who's who, who's black, who's white, where they are on the chessboard, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what what, what particular piece it is, you know? And then, then you start to get a better understanding of the rules. And so we're in very interesting times right now. We're at a period of time that, that was discussed in 1954, where with the automation of society and the science of energy, eventually it would come to pass that the people would have the same power to influence affairs as the ruling class. And we're there now. Mm-hmm. And this is it. Machiavelli once said, there are only two kinds of people. And the the nobles and the commoners. And he said, and of the two, the commoners are the better people because they only have but one wish, and that is to be free from oppression. And the nobles only have one wish, and that is but to oppress the common people. And I didn't want to believe that. But I'm starting to look around, and I'm starting to see that, you know what, maybe not all nobles are like that, but there are some that are. And I've recognized them, and I see them doing their work and i recognize them yeah well it's yeah i think there's a lot to unpack there i think one thing you mentioned that was very uh yeah like you said we live in a time essentially where with technology uh, i i I don't know what you said there but you said we live in a time with with technology we're actually able to influence and have this you could quote, quote unquote power that years ago um, only like a certain class of people had that ability. And I, I definitely agree. I think the internet is uh, the great equalizer, right? Like it literally makes it so you could be this random person out of nowhere and have this this idea. And I think I credit Steve Jobs for this, for like literally creating the, the Mac and like all these devices, the app store that we can literally turn our ideas into tangible like reality. And, and that can take you from zero to hero in a sense, right? And I think it is a scary time, right? It's scary in the sense where you see, um, yeah, it's scary in a sense where you see people who are very good at utilizing technology aren't necessarily the people who have the most resources or have the most capital, but it's the people who have, uh, I don't know how to say this, but maybe it's intuition. Maybe it's, uh, (laughs) maybe it's just, uh, like, I don't know what they have, but they're able to apply what they have into the internet and use that. And I think it is it is the great equalizer that we're living in. It, it is maybe, you know, not scary times, but times are definitely changing. And I personally think it's good that you give the best, the people with the best ideas, no matter where they come from, um, are able to compete with the people who have the most capital. And I think when I look at the U.S. or specifically um, I think that's like the idea here is like literally, and that's what I love about the U.S. in a sense is that no matter where you come from, you know, you'll get the Silicon Valleys, you'll get all the diversity, and that's where great ideas are spread because they're not necessarily the top down, but almost like bottom up. And it's kind of like what you said, where the best ideas kind of hash it out over like a battlefield, and then the best idea rises to the top. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, 
yeah, like that, that's why when I look at sometimes all the chaos, like specifically in the US that's going on, in a sense, I think it's kind of good because where where else in the world is that really where is where is that really allowed, right? And I think like as long as you don't take that for granted. We wouldn't be alive without it, both in our mm -hmm. behavior and in our foreign policy. You touched upon an interesting dynamic. You talked about bottom up. So in our military, we have command and control. Command flows down and control flows up. It doesn't work that way with the Chinese army or the Russian army. Command and control both flow down. They're trying to change that. Mm -hmm. Because what happens when you have a situation like that is, like Mr. Chi has basically isolated himself from anybody. Nobody wants to tell him anything. So he knows nothing that's going on. And when he makes mistakes, millions of people are going to die. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> that's what happens when you have a top-down system. You have no feedback from the bottom. In our army and in our culture, we have a system that has top-down and bottom-up. We have a polyarchy. And our foreign policy is also chaos. You know, we invaded Iraq and we didn't steal their oil. And now we're looting Syria's oil. And nobody really knows about it. So it's like the foreign policy is totally... I understand why foreign policy is the way that it is. That's a whole other discussion. But yeah, America would not exist if it wasn't for its chaos. And it needs to constantly replenish itself. And this, um, this crop of professional liars that pass as politicians are not statesmen. They're not good managers of public life. They're not even good people. And it's it should be obvious to anybody just, just, just watch them speak, listen to them contradict themselves over the space of 10 seconds. I mean, it's not that difficult. It's it's not rocket science, it's not brain surgery. And um <clears throat> so I think that um We are at a confluence of events that's very difficult. We've had periods like this in our history before. Some One time we had a civil war during one of these. Mm -hmm. This can get really nasty. And, and I, it was an analyst that commented, he's surprised at how quiet it's been. And I kind of am too, actually. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised at how quiet it's been considering especially the crap that that people are trying to pull now like the stuff that i'm reading in the news is not good and uh the the plays that people are making in the courts are not good and a lot of people are going to lose their minds and that's not good i hope that that our people will remain calm because this is this 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 flipping out and this violence is not going to help and um if we can survive this thing this country will be reborn and it will be strong and it will be all the good things that, that you're talking about and that you see. If people don't find it in themselves to do what needs to be done to make that happen, then, well, like I said, there's a lot of people that aren't going to make it. And I'd rather not be one of those people that doesn't make it. Mm -hmm. It's it's we have to retool our entire economy in a labor shortage as our capital is is leaving because the boomers are retiring. And if we don't do it, 
it's, it's going to be so much worse. If we do it, it's going to be hell for like eight to 10 years and then it'll get better, I guess. There'll be some problems mm-hmm. and we'll panic. It won't be as bad as, it won't be that bad, but we'll panic and we'll make it hell. You know, Peter's, I think Peter Sahane was saying that and I agree with him. Um, but yeah. Yeah, well, well, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure everything will, will work out perfectly. Because, I hope it will, but yeah, it's yeah, I, I know it will, right? Like the thing is, no matter how bad it gets, um, yeah, like I think, like America, like deep down, the American people, not just the country, but the people, um, and Canada, Canada included, um, yeah, like we we get it right eventually, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah. what did Churchill say? Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all other options, or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, I, I guess like this kind of leans into the next topic that I want to touch on, and this is going to be unique because I, I know that you're a U.S. Army veteran, and you know, just someone who has come out of the army. Like, what do you think the challenges there are? Like, why is it that um, you know, people who exit the army have these stresses and issues that they, they're faced with. Um, and what do you think the solution is? There are a lot of reasons why, why people have stressful situations when they come out. Um, everyone's different. And there's no simple answer to that question. It depends on the person, but the um, there's a diminution of one's humanity when one serves in the military. There's no getting around that. So, so what do you mean by that? You're not entirely human when you're a soldier. You're not treated like you're entirely human. Never for the rest of your life are you ever treated like you're entirely human again. And to be an effective soldier, you have to learn how to dehumanize others. And the military is not known for its compassion. You put all those things together in the context of our society and our individualism and the things that make us great can sometimes isolate us from one another too. And you take people from an organization where they can cooperate well that's stating that's changing well you could cooperate with people and you could trust people and then you come out of that environment or if that trust is betrayed which happens a lot mm-hmm. and there's people of all ranks that'll tell you that there are generals that have said things that i'm not going to repeat outside of uh, those conversations because that was between me and them. But I've, I've heard that some of the most disturbing things about the army I've ever heard came out of the mouths of generals. 
And um, look, it's a dirty job. And um, it's a nasty business. And this is just how the sausages are made. And unfortunately, very few of us fully grasp that, if any of us can fully grasp that, when we make the decisions that we make to participate in these things. But every man and woman's struggle is different. And I mean, I might have some... I'm in. I'm kind of like I said. I had a. I'm in kind of a bad mood today. So maybe my views are a little pessimistic and clouded by some of the political BS I saw when I was trying to, you know, do my thing earlier. I can express my concern that my people won't make it if they don't develop a certain way. Because I believe that there's hope for my people, and I believe that if they do certain things, that they can avoid this stuff. I can't speak about these struggles because in some cases, I don't know that I can say anything that'll make it any better. I don't know that I'm not making it worse. All I've ever been able to do is make myself available to, and they're usually guys, that want to talk about it and um and you know something i guess um if there's anybody who's never served please don't ask us if we've been deployed or we've been in combat that's that's just a we, we know you're trying to ask us if we've killed somebody and quite frankly it's none of your damn business if you want to participate in those hostilities pick up a weapon and stand a post and um And if a veteran ever wants to talk to you, you can thank him for his service by taking some time to listen to him and see what he or she has to say. Because um, there's a lot of guys and, and, and ladies out there, not just veterans, but I do know a lot of them. They, sometimes they just want somebody to talk to. They just want to connect with somebody and they just don't have that. Maybe they've been abused their whole life and the military was all they had. And things didn't go quite right for them. You know, this is all kinds of, most of us don't go in the military because things were going good for us. And, um, and it is a dirty business and it's war. There's no way of making it nice. You're there to kill people and break stuff. And hopefully in the process of doing that, you defend your country and your people and you don't become a monster. I don't know what else to say. Let's let's talk about something else. Maybe we could talk about religion or some of these disagreements you think we might have or something, something yeah. a little more pleasant, <laughs> something yeah. that'll lead to a fun. <laughs> yeah, well, number one, I just want to thank you like for your service specifically. And I think that 
um, yeah, like whenever I see someone who serves in the military, I think that's huge respect. Like one of my good friends served in the Canadian military, but uh, I think it's huge respect just seeing you like serve as a veteran um, or serve in the U.S. Army and then be in this space of meditation or just sit, sitting down with other veterans and helping people. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, really important to just help, you know, your, your fellow man in that way. So yeah, like I'll never understand the struggles of what it's like to be in the military. And I've always known that it's, uh, it's just a very hard job. It's a very hard job, but it's unfortunately like what the world sometimes requires and it should always be respected, of course. Um, but yeah, I guess we could jump in into another topic here and, uh, yeah, I guess, Oh, I feel like we've covered a lot so far. Like we've, we've definitely covered a lot. Um, you know, like maybe we'll jump more into the, like with you, like coaching your students and, and teaching them meditation. Like, what do you think most people come to you, uh, either like if they're struggling with something or if they're coming to learn, like how, how do you teach your students and, and what do you teach? No, oddly enough, most of the people that have come to me have 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 experienced meditating. I thought that I was going to get more people who'd never tried it before. So there's a lot of people that have, um, well, they just have some flaws in their practices. So basically, I evaluate everybody. So most of the people I get have some experience. And so I'll look at their answers in the evaluation. I'll look for red flags immediately because if I, they have any red flags, I, I can't. Um, but then I'll look and I'll see you know, what I can see from the eval, have a discussion with them, maybe go a little deeper, ask some questions, maybe even get a video of them meditating, depending on how deep the thing goes. And then I'll look for flaws in their practice. And I'll explain what I see and why I see it. And, you know, can I fix it? Or can't I fix it? Is this something we can work on? Or can't we, you know, and then I basically just, you know, talk with the person and see if there's something we can do. And I have a framework, you know, that I that of, of exercises and things it's customizable to each person but there's some things that are basic to everybody and there's some things that can be added in on a case-by-case -case basis like if you're suffering from chronic stress we might throw in some square breathing or some four seven eight breathing or something like that with your work to kind of help you activate your parasympathetic nervous system and be more in control of your emotions so that during the day and also for sitting and then this will have some integrative effects on your life but you know those are things that 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 we put in during the process um but yeah it's um that's basically how it starts and then it, it, it every journey is a little bit different but yeah there's there's a few phases that we go through stilling the body you know breathing and 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 uh focusing on the space between thoughts developing non-judgmental concentration and receptive awareness and um and that's usually it, well, I'm expanding it a bit now. It was three to five weeks before, but I'm adding a little bit more integrative stuff because uh, there's just more that I can do with folks. So I kind of talk with them and see, you know, if they want the bare bones, we do the bare bones. You want to do more, we do more. Really depends on the person. Every journey is a little bit different, mm -hmm. but the basic structure is the same. So that's what I do. And I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy being able to work with people on that level. I, but I'm putting together this virtual coaching program because I only have so many hours in a day. And so it'll be a generic version of this with, you know, the exercises and whatnot, and, you know, not much customization. I can't review journal entries because it's too much, too many people, and I can't get as involved in the coaching. Um, so it's a little, 
but at least it'll be more available for people and the people that want a lower price point, that'll be a lower price point, of course. And so it'll work for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's basically where I'm at with, with the coaching side of things right now. Absolutely. And so here's a question, Joshua, where, where can people learn more about Innerscapes, you know, look at the programs you have all to offer and uh, just learn more about you, you in general, like where can people find you? Sure. www.innerscapesmeditation.com. And I've got like my LinkedIn. I do some reels on IG. I have some news that goes out on Twitter once in a while. So the stuff that I put out there is they're basically offerings to the public to see, you know, if any of these things brush up against you and you're interested, you like any of it, you have something to say, maybe we can have a discussion. And um, and if you're interested in meditation coaching, oh, here I am. Um, but that, that's, that's basically all that I do. And you can, you can see the links there. And if you're interested, I'd appreciate the encouragement and support. It does mean a lot to me. I get DMS from people and I get, I get, um, you know, people say things to me. They, they appreciate some of my offerings, my email lists where I go over like, um, the, the, some of the Buddhist sutras, um, every positive comment does matter to me. There are times where I'm where I'm in a bad mood and I don't think about it, and then I'll feel guilty after. I'll be like, "Oh yeah, well, it's, every positive comment matters to me." When there are, when there are hard days, they matter. Another thing I like to do too, like on my website, I have some testimonials. Whenever I'm not feeling so good about myself, or I feel like I've done something wrong in business or whatever, I'll go and I'll look at my testimonials and I'll tell myself that's the standard that people expect from Joshua Jordan. That's what I have to do. And I feel better immediately. So, um, yeah, if you do find any of my material useful, please comment, say something, even if you disagree with me, let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think something I, I kind of, uh, this is something I kind of pick up from you, but like, I feel like you, you have this sense that you're very driven, motivated, and you, and you always, like, you know, push, push for success. Like, wh- where does that come from? I guess, um, I guess I've managed to channel some of my more aggressive instincts into something a little more constructive. Whereas as a child, I was more of a hellion and I went into the army where aggression is encouraged and directed in a certain way. And I developed even more self-discipline. And now I use a lot of the tools that I've developed, you know, in the military and through meditation and through other things. And I try to, I try to move a, a better agenda forward. You know, I try to, I just try to channel things in that way. Absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, like I, th- I think that's what a lot of the Stoics talked about is just this idea of discipline, like there's power that comes with discipline. And, uh, I think it, it clearly shows, shows with you, right? So, um, so yeah, I guess I have two more questions to, to ask you before, uh, cause I know I've taken up probably quite a bit of your time, but, um, but yeah, so th- this is more a deep question, Joshua, but like, let's say if you had one message on a billboard, for the rest of the world to see um, right now in current times with uh, a war going on between Ukraine and Russia, you know, some crazy political stuff happening in the U S and just uh, with everything going on in the world, what would Joshua's message be uh, to the public? I understand that I get upset too. And I understand that 
that that this is a confusing and difficult time. There's no need for violence. We it's complicated, but that's what negotiation is. Negotium is Latin. It means not easy. And we don't have to do this with machine guns against the wall. And we don't have to do this by dumping metal and chemicals on one another. Our people are dying. They're in demographic collapse. Not I'm not talking about the American people. I'm talking about the human species. And there was a time where we were at fewer than 10,000 breeding humans on this planet. And we might get there again. It's difficult, and I'm not the person to be telling people to calm down. But we have to do our best to remain calm until this crisis abates. This is going to get hard, and it's going to be hard for another several years. We have antibiotics. We have the Internet. Our ancestors didn't. And like Terrence McKenna said, we're not going to drop the ball on our watch, and we will proceed with the faith that others have lived through worse. And I guess that would be what I would really want to say to humanity and have them believe that and have them to try to actually make that happen. Absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, number one, I, I just want to thank you for this podcast and this conversation because, yeah, I just genuinely enjoyed, like, the man and I, I saw you on LinkedIn, I was like, we need to have a conversation because uh, I just want to just pretty much learn, just just see see what you're about in this conversation. There's a lot of things here that I'm definitely have to have to, I want to think about, and I've learned qu quite a bit. So um, I guess really what the podcast is about Sinfulness is this idea that you should enjoy the journey and always each conversation the very last question is this this one question and, and it is about the journey so here's my question to you joshua what does it mean to enjoy the journey well again you, you have to you have to you have to be able to 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 have a bit of an adventure with it, you know. You have to be able to. You have to be willing to go and sit down next to the fire on the beach at eleven o'clock at night with those weird people. You have to consider the possibility that you're going to get up and go on the boat with that sea captain who just lost his girlfriend who has his boat anchored out on the shore. You have to. You know, you, you have to take your eye off the ball. Again, back to McKenna a little bit. You really got to take your eye off the ball. You really got to look. When I got out of the military, I went and I traveled for a number of years. That's one of the best things that I ever did for myself. I went out and I got in adventures and I had all kinds of, of things that I did and people that I met. And I, I studied things and I, I, I did so much stuff. And I never would have been able to do that if I'd stayed in the military, if I'd gotten a job right after. You know, they wanted me to, 
because they, they try to hire soldiers, you know, for, for like police forces and stuff like that. And they kept trying to like, oh, you might, you know, you're going to go over there and smoke weed or something. It's going to be hard for you. And I'm like, look, man, I'm traveling. I don't have time for this stuff. But the pressure, the pressure to participate, the pressure not to enjoy the journey is huge. It's huge. Even sitting and meditating, you would be surprised how many people how selfish you are just sitting there meditating while people in the world are suffering. Right. And you're sitting there complaining about it. Like it's just, it's, but that's that again, that's the suffering contest. We don't need to get into, but that's the psychology, but mm-hmm. yeah, like you've got to, you've got to understand that a Turkish foreign minister's son at the time told me you have to have enough power to live the life that you want to live. Now, for some people, that's a lot of power and that's a lot of life. I think you can take it too far. You can get greedy. But you need to have enough personal power. And that comes through your discipline and your education. You need to have the discipline, the education, and the courage to follow your heart. And you have to have that sense of wonder. And you have to have that sense of curiosity. And you have to be willing to take time to talk with people. And you have to be willing to go places. And if you just allow yourself to be free, and take your eye off the ball once in a while adventure will find you and enjoyment will find you or you may just spontaneously be happy and start laughing at just how good it is just to be alive and feel the sun or something you know it'll happen just um like now okay earlier i was i was we were talking about some other things and my tone and my mood got very negative um you could say depressive you could say angry you could say a mixture of the two but now i'm over here and (laughs) that's what it's like to be open to the adventure Mm -hmm. you have to be able to empty your heart not to be heartless but to be able to empty your heart like my teacup is empty now and i can put more tea in it and if you can empty your heart you can invite in the adventure and the enjoyment of life. And there you have it, guys. Joshua Jordan with Inner Space Meditation, U.S. Army veteran, and just overall journeyer of, of life. So thank you very much for this interview. And uh, yeah, I had a blast, man. This is, uh, this is one of my favorites, and I'm definitely going to come back to this episode uh, just to give it a few a few re-listens because uh, there's a, there's a lot in here. There's a lot. This is like a this is a very good one. So thank you very much, Josh. Thank you.